and continued the game of the game of deal or no deal, the courts have played a leading role in the whole sorry process. Their decisions have had political ramifications and suggest a growing role for the courts in shaping the UK constitution, which some argue has shifted the balance between Parliament, the executive and the courts, and exposed weaknesses in our lawmaking process. The courts have attracted criticism along the way, most notably in the case brought by businesswoman Gina Miller and others, in which the Supreme Court ruled that the Prime Minister couldn't trigger uh, Article 50 and kick-start the Brexit process without parliamentary approval. The case, as you all know, notoriously saw the judges in the Court of Appeal branded enemies of the people. In the end, Parliament approved the Prime Minister's decision by an overwhelming majority. So it's arguable that the court ruling itself made little difference. But what it perhaps did do was give a license for Parliament to be more active and flex its muscles and uh, for the power grab, as some would see it, by MPs with their incessant meaningful votes and attempts to take over the order paper. As MPs continue their efforts to stop the UK leaving the EU without a deal, and in the face of Tory, front runner, Tory leadership frontrunner Boris Johnson suggesting that he might uh, steal Dominic Raab's idea and seek to suspend Parliament to prevent it frustrating a no-deal exit, something which Dominic Grieve said would be the end of parliamentary democracy, we again have the prospect of court involvement. The former Conservative Prime Minister, again, as you will all be aware, uh, Sir John Major said that he will seek a judicial review if Boris Johnson does try to prorogue Parliament, a view that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, uh, also supports, and Gina Miller has indicated her willingness to do likewise. At university, when I was studying for my law degree, I had to do constitutional law and EU law. I admit to finding the uh, complexities and constitutional ramifications of all of this somewhat baffling and wish I'd paid a bit more attention in class. Fortunately, to discuss these issues and shed some light on uh, the impact of all of this on our constitution and whether we do in fact stand on the verge of a constitutional crisis, we have a stellar panel featuring an academic and expert in EU law, a lawyer turned civil servant, a barrister turned MP, and a barrister turned Justice of the Supreme Court. Our panel on my right then, Catherine Barnard, Professor <laughs> in European Law and Labour Law at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge. She is also a Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe. Catherine has appeared on Question Time and uh, other programmes in the increasingly noisy debate as the impartial voice of sanity and reason. In unwelcome news to those who want to see a speedy resolution to Brexit, she recently said, we are only at the end of the beginning. It's the next stage that will be far more difficult than this. Catherine uh, wrote a comment piece in today's brief, that uh, publication again from the Times this morning, on what John Major will have to do to uh, stop any uh, prorogation. Uh, Lord Sumption, immediately on my, on my right, who, as Alistair Campbell once said, has the brain the size of a planet. 
he was the first person to be appointed to the Supreme Court without previously having served as a full-time judge, and he was among the majority of the 11-strong court who agreed that MPs should have a vote before Article 50 was triggered. Lord Sumption retired from the court last year and delivered this year's BBC Reith Lectures, during which he voiced concern that the decline of politics has caused the rise of law to fill the void and suggested that the courts have become too powerful. On my left, we have Dominic Grieve, barrister, Conservative MP for Beaconsfield and for former Attorney General, who, along with 497 of his fellow MPs, voted with the government in favour of notifying the European Commission that the UK would leave the EU on the 29th of March this year, but who has since become Westminster's poster boy for Remain, leading the voices in Parliament against Brexit and in favour of a second referendum. He faced a deselection over his efforts. Last week, in a bid to try to ensure that the future Prime Minister cannot prorogue Parliament in order to prevent MPs blocking a no deal, he tabled an amendment to the Northern Ireland Bill to require ministers to report on the situation regularly, an amendment that was passed by a single vote. I'm sure we'll have more on that very shortly. And Sir Stephen Laws, who, after qualifying and practising as a barrister, the very aptly named gentleman joined the civil service and was the first parliamentary council from 2006 to 2012, uh, having worked in the office of parliamentary council since 1976. Since retiring from the civil service in 2012, he has served on the McKay Commission into the West Lothian question and is a senior research fellow on policy exchanges judicial power project. In an article for the Sunday Times, he and a colleague of his, Professor Richard Ekins, wrote about their fears over the impact that MPs' efforts to take control of Parliament could have on the future of the Constitution. They wrote, If MPs continue down this path, it would turn the central principle of the UK's Constitution, as it has evolved over centuries, on its head. Without further ado then, uh, I think Catherine is going to go first to talk about the legal processes that might be used um, to stop any prorogation. Um, So, Catherine, over to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, John Major's um, uh, claim on the Today programme last week that if uh, there was an attempt to prorogue Parliament, then um, he would seek judicial review. Now, I'm going to do some of the nuts and bolts, and then Lord Sumption is going to do some of the high-level intellectual analysis, as is befitting his very high station and my significantly lower one. So, um, first of all, what's proroguing of Parliament? Um, as you may have noticed, there's lots of discussion about it, but there hasn't, there's not much clarity about precisely what it means. It's very odd that um, Parliament has to vote on recess, i.e. when they go on holiday, but to try and bring Parliament to an end, that is the um, the, uh, prerogative power of the Queen, but acting on um, advice of her ministers. And prorogation um, can be short, it can be a matter of days, or it can be long. And the only limits, as far as we can tell, on the length of prorogation is a statute of 1694. And that statute requires Parliament to be held at least once every three years. 
Um, however, that may well be qualified by some very practical considerations that Parliament today has got to uh, vote on certain uh, spending and certain uh, tax-raising powers, and that has to be done one year at a time. So it looks like there does need to be um, a Parliament sitting annually. So it's a prerogative power of the monarch, and prerogative goes back in time. It's because we don't have a written constitution. It's always a bit unclear precisely what those prerogative powers are. But by convention, although not by law, um, if ministers advise uh, the Queen to use her prerogative power in a particular way, the monarch will comply. And that's quite important because it means the political responsibility for using prerogative powers lies with ministers who can be questioned uh, in Parliament by MPs about precisely what they have done. Um, that said, if the um, Prime Minister doesn't have the confidence of the House, uh, then clearly the respect given to the Prime Minister um, is, uh, would be somewhat less than one with a very large majority, and no monarch is required to act on unconstitutional advice. So there is a question, can the monarch actually refuse to um, prorogue Parliament? And we don't really know the answer to that question, but there was a case um, involving Canada where the Governor-General did pause for a while to try and work out whether Parliament should be prorogued. Indeed, she did eventually uh, say that the Parliament should be prorogued, but the long pause suggested that there was at least the possibility that Parliament, um, the request to prorogue Parliament could be refused. Now, the question of whether uh, the monarch can reject a prime ministerial request is different to a request um, for, uh, is different to a challenge to the legality of the prorogation in the first place. And that's what I want to look at, because that's essentially what John Major was trying to um, call for. He says there should be a challenge, or there could be a challenge, to the decision of the monarch to prorogue Parliament. Now, this raises a rather nice point for students of constitutional law. Can you sue the Queen in her own courts? Answer, probably not. But you can get round that relatively easily by challenging the Prime Minister upon whose advice the Queen has acted. But it's important to remember this is a case of judicial review, and there's lots of confusion about judicial review. You often see judicial review described in the press as some sort of appellate mechanism, a sort of reconsideration of the substance of the decision taken. And that is simply not the case with judicial review. Judicial review is much more of a scrutiny about process. And indeed, there are three grounds of challenge. As you can imagine, there are textbooks written on this. And what I'm about, what I'm about to say is, is the simplified version. But there are essentially three kinds of ground upon which judicial judicial review can be um, brought, that the decision, first of all, was tainted by procedural impropriety, that the decision was illegal in some way, or that the decision was wholly unreasonable or irrational. Now note, none of those grounds are saying the Prime Minister got it wrong. It's not a decision, not a challenge on the substance. 
So let's look at those three very briefly. First of all, remember the first ground is some sort of procedural impropriety. And what might be the procedural impropriety here? Possibly that the opposition hadn't been consulted or possibly that nobody else had been consulted. I don't think that is really a runner as an argument because it is an executive power and the executive, there's no obligation on the executive to consult. And that would require the judges to be really quite proactive. So I'm not sure that is a particularly good ground of challenge. <clears throat> the second ground of challenge might be what we call a legality challenge. And a colleague has written that um, there is an argument that prorogation might violate the requirements of the Bill of Rights in 1689. And the Bill of Rights, and I turn it into lay English, essentially says Parliament ought to be held frequently. The problem is, as I already mentioned, when the Bill of Rights Act was passed, the expectation was that Parliament shouldn't meet very often at all. Indeed, once every three years was quite enough. So it's not clear that this was, um, would be such a good argument. Perhaps more interesting and perhaps the most fruitful ground of challenge would be some sort of legality challenge that the Prime Minister has misunderstood and misapplied the law in some way. And the way the argument might run would be, well, Parliament, um, the power to prorogue Parliament only exists for the purposes consistent with the existence and functioning of a parliamentary democracy. So, for example, you should only be able to prorogue Parliament for the purposes of facilitating a new Queen's speech or allowing the House to consider a question that it's already looked at. For example, reconsidering the withdrawal agreement would be a good example of that. And so you could argue that prorogation undermines representative democracy because the Prime Minister's purpose in calling for a prorogation would be to frustrate parliamentary democracy. And then that raises a very interesting question about how any court might respond when essentially faced with a challenge, on the one hand, between representative democracy and, on the other hand, uh, a more um, direct form of democracy, i.e. the referendum and delivering on the will of the people. And, of course, that will drag the courts into that very area where uh, Lord Sumption has been so critical in the past. Um, a third ground would be unreasonableness or irrationality, which um, Dominic Grieve has um, uh, talked about before when he said, as our chair pointed out, that prorogation would be the end of parliamentary democracy. But I think that's probably just another way of putting the legality argument. And so it therefore seems to me that the legality argument is perhaps the strongest. But I think what I've concluded is that, in fact... Um, it's not at all clear, even if there was judicial review, that John Major would necessarily get the outcome he was expecting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lord Sumption, on the, the, the role of the courts in the, in the whole process. The main contribution that the courts have so far made to this whole issue was in the Gina Miller case. The Gina Miller case was politically exceptionally interesting by the standards of court proceedings, but it is actually a bog-standard example of something that the courts have been doing since the 17th century. 
The question that they have been asking is, what are the limits of the government's powers? Um, it turned also on an extremely ancient principle, which is that the government does not have power to act unilaterally so as to change the law. That's all that the Gina Miller decide, case decided, apart from some points on conventions which I shall come to. Most constitutional problems generated by the whole Brexit saga arise from a situation which is completely unique in our history uh, since parliamentary democracy assumed something like its current form in the early 19th century. We have a House of Commons which professes to have confidence in Her Majesty's government, but not in its flagship policy, and indeed not in its only policy. <laughs> For that reason, we have had discussion about whether ministers have the power to advise Her Majesty to veto an act of parliament, such as Oliver Letwin's uh, bill, uh, the, the Oliver Letwin's Act, I should say, or whether they have power to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament, an issue which came to the fore with the utterances of Dominic Raab and more recently Boris Johnson. The problem facing the courts in cases like this is that we have, as Bernard Jenkins said this morning, and it's about the only proposition this morning that I agree with, uh, we have a basically political constitution. It has large legal elements, but it is a fundamentally political regime. It is only partly governed by law. Its flexibility and adaptability to change arises very largely from the fact uh, that one of the major elements in the British constitution is the role of conventions. Conventions are rules, but they are not rules of law. They are rules of practice whose force arises from the fact that it would be politically costly to disregard them. So we have conventions governing the power of ministers to deploy the prerogative of the crown, conventions about the relations between the government and parliament, conventions about the relations between the United Kingdom and the devolved regions. <coughs> the relations between the Crown and Parliament, which would be the fundamental issue uh, in any court proceeding on further stages of Brexit, the relations between the Crown and Parliament are almost entirely governed by conventions. Apart from the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, it basically is a system based on convention. It is only in very limited respects determined by law. But the courts are concerned only with that part of the constitution of this country which is governed by law. They decide what the law is. And this came up directly in the Gina Miller case because one of the arguments was uh, that uh, Brexit uh, could not uh, properly be proceeded with consistently with the Sewell Convention uh, under which uh, Westminster will not normally legislate uh, on devolved matters uh, um, uh, centrally. Now, uh, what the Supreme Court decided on that in the Gina Miller case uh, was that conventions are binding in the forum of politics only. They are not justiciable. They have force, but political force, but they do not have legal force. What that means is that the answer 
to many constitutional questions in the United Kingdom, uh, one possible answer to, to them is that something is lawful but unconstitutional. That would be an impossibility in most systems, but in a system which is only partly governed by law and the rest is convention, it's perfectly possible in this country. Now, I'm not going to venture a dogmatic answer to the question, uh, what would be the outcome of a judicial review such as the one uh, proposed by John Major? It's such a new and such a startling issue that I don't think any prediction could be made with very much confidence. In law, as it seems to me, the Queen undoubtedly has the power to prorogue Parliament. Uh, the convention uh, is uh, that that power, like other prerogative powers of the Crown, is exercised on the advice of ministers. But that convention is based on the assumption that ministers command a majority in the House of Commons. It was not a convention which is made or readily usable by a government which does not have command of the House of Commons on a critical issue such as Brexit. Now, uh, there are a, a number of questions uh, which this raises, but it seems to me uh, pretty clear as a matter of principle uh, that uh, the courts are not in a position to police a purely political regime such as the one that governs the advice that may be given uh, to Her Majesty about a conventional issue of this sort. Now, conventions, of course, can change. They can change as the political consensus changes. But I do not see that a convention can be changed by the mere fact of being broken. The breach has got to reflect some change in the underlying consensus. And for that reason, I do not see that a convention uh, can be changed uh, by a minister uh, simply acting unilaterally uh, to advise the monarch in a manner inconsistent with it. Now, we therefore need in this situation a head of state who can act as a constitutional arbiter. Uh, unfortunately, the queen cannot do that. The queen is a hereditary monarch. She is part of what Badgett, 150 years ago, called the dignified part of the Constitution. Uh, she does and must distance herself from political controversy. Does it follow that she must quietly do whatever the Prime Minister advises her to do, uh, irrespective of the fact that it is being, contrary to a convention, unconstitutional, although lawful? To my mind, the only sensible answer to this is a measure of delegation such as has occasionally been used, I think, uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, it seems to me uh, that it, the Queen, if she is wise, would appoint a committee of privy councillors, which would be a largely judicial body, but with a significant political element, and which would advise her in advance of the proper limits of the advice that ministers can properly tender to her consistently with the conventions of the British Constitution because I do not think that ministers can be allowed to be the sole judge of this, especially if they have no majority in the House of Commons. That is all I think I will say at this stage.
flowing nicely on from that. Um, Dominic's now going to tell us about uh, the role of Parliament and those uh, procedural niceties and other things that it's uh, been entertaining us all with lately. Dominic. Thank you. What, what I thought I'd try to do this afternoon, because I don't, we're trying to focus on different subjects rather than repeat ourselves, and I have to say, having listened to Lord Sumption, I find myself in, in total agreement with his analysis, and it strikes me that John Major will have considerable difficulties in bringing, or Gina Miller, uh, JR, uh, of uh, the Prime Minister's advice to the monarch. But what I thought I just want to focus on is the way in which Brexit has thrown up a whole series of quite interesting issues, I don't want to get too bogged down in the history of it, about the limits of Parliament's ability to do what it wants. And I should emphasize in this, when I use that term, that I, I'm mindful of the fact that you could argue that if Parliament actually decided it really wanted to do something, it might have done it better than it has. And its own hesitations may be the source of its own difficulties. But nevertheless, it does, I think, illustrate some of the problems. You'll be aware that when this debate started... I suppose, really, from my point of view, when we had the EU Withdrawal Act, my first act or act of rebellion was to try to make sure that the government couldn't take us out of the EU on an EU Withdrawal Agreement before the EU Withdrawal Agreement had actually been agreed by Parliament because they were making provision in the EU Withdrawal Act to enable us to do just that. And my famous amendment, which was supposed to confer a meaningful vote, was not really about a meaningful vote. It was about stopping that happening. And then over the course of last year, particularly, we built on that in trying to establish some principles by which Parliament might provide input in the event of a no-deal arising, which is, of course, exactly what has happened. And area in which I've had only rather limited success, uh, because although we got some sort of structure going uh, with the uh, failure with the, in relation to the deal which the Prime Minister had negotiated, once the Prime Minister's deal died a death, apparently, on the 12th of April, and we extended the Article 50 period, the daisy chain that I had carefully crafted to try to enable the House to take control of the order paper and provide some input into the process was lost. And the debate that's been taking place since has been really about whether there is a way in which Parliament might get control of the order paper again in order to head off a no-deal Brexit and perhaps more focused, as we are now, in order to head off a no-deal Brexit brought about by prorogation because these two things are obviously not one and the same thing. You could have a no-deal Brexit by a fluxion of time even if the House of Commons is sitting although some people think that that's rather unlikely because the House of Commons appears not to want a no-deal Brexit, even though, frequently, it doesn't seem to do very much about it. Now, the two most recent examples are, I think, quite illustrative of the issue. The first, which has been rather glossed over because it's now ancient history, was Margaret Beckett and my attempt at using the Estimates Day in the House of Commons to, to fetter an incoming government in that we uh, tabled amendments to the estimates which would have had the effect that the money supply would have been cut off had we left with no deal without the approval of the House of Commons on the 31st of October. And interestingly, a lot of my colleagues were deeply shocked 
by this. Uh, quite apart from anything else, giving the impression that you're about to take money out of pensioners' purses and cut off welfare benefits doesn't necessarily go down very well with some of my colleagues, even though my motivation in advocating it was that the chances of this happening were zero because the government would be long gone before it was able to carry out Brexit and precipitate such an outcome. Effectively, what it would have done would be to put a shot across the Prime Minister's bows that they could not do something because without it they would be deprived of supply. And I kept on making the point to colleagues that actually withholding supply is apart from a motion of no confidence, which even prior to the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, it's only a convention that the government resigns, but withholding supply is the one thing the House of Commons actually has the power to do unilaterally. But I was spared the opportunity of doing this because the Speaker, perhaps in his wisdom, decided not to select the amendments. Uh, whether that was because he felt that they were not selectable, which I rather doubt, or whether because he considered... And I should add, I had no input into this, <laughs> the, uh, that it was unlikely to succeed. I simply don't know. I don't know whether it would have succeeded or not. It enjoyed some support in the House, including, I think, from the Labour opposition. The next one, which has now surfaced, is the Northern Ireland Bill. The truth is that the House of Commons has very limited capacity to take control of the order paper and pass either legislation or even resolutions which in any case, resolutions of the House of Commons now get routinely ignored by government, even though I was always brought up in the constitutional tradition that a resolution of the House of Commons ought to be given very substantial weight. But now governments routinely ignore Opposition Day resolutions and just put them in the trash bin immediately. They're just gone. So faced with that... There's been a suggestion that we might try to take control of the order paper using an SO24 debate, although it's unclear if the Speaker would facilitate that. So that, again, is an example of the Speaker's discretion. And then the other opportunity which presented itself, because the government has been enacting very little legislation, is at the Northern Ireland Bill. Because that bill provides a timetable for reports to be made on the setting up of the executive and various other matters... It provided a clear opportunity to amend it to try to make clear that there were various things which ought to be done during the passage of this bill which would require the House to be sitting in September and October, right up to the deadline. So the motivation was to try to amend this bill so as to enable us to do that. And indeed, the original amendments I tabled had a clause, new clause 14, which specifically required prorogation, said that if the House were prorogued, it would have to be recalled in order to deal with these matters, thus ensuring that throughout September and October, prorogation for any length of time would be impossible. Now, the interesting thing about this is that in the House of Commons, the, we were told that these amendments were in scope. That is to say, they were proper amendments to table to this legislation. But unfortunately, from my point of view, uh, the key amendment was not selected by the Deputy Speaker, who was sitting as the Chairman of Ways and Means at the time of the uh, committee sitting, the House sitting in committee. And so, as a consequence, it was never reached. When the bill goes to the Lords, where it is going to be today, 
the peers in the Lords have been informed that the amendment, which I would quite like to see them go back to, which is the anti-prorogation amendment, is not in scope. So here you have an absolute classic example, and I simply put it forward, of the extent to which the way in which we interpret the rules by which Parliament is governed have an infinite flexibility and great deal of uncertainty. And the consequence of that is it is quite likely that the bill will come back from the Lords without the key amendment that the Lords might wish to put in and the Commons might want to vote on if the Commons had an opportunity to vote on it on Thursday. I don't know what will happen. It's possible that the peers might disregard the advice of the clerks of the, of the Lords, although disregarding the advice of the clerks of the Lords, I'm not quite sure what the conventions are in respect of that and how their Lordships will react to it. But I put this forward as a very interesting example, seeing this is an academic discussion, of the extent to which when people are con con trying to consider how the House of Commons might stop either no-deal Brexit or prorogation, the reality is that we are governed by a series of really complicated and rather arcane rules. They haven't been invented for nothing. I want to make that clear. They've almost certainly been invented over time because historically it's got to be remembered that the balance ruled government in Parliament is the Queen in Parliament and therefore has to take account of the rights of the executive via the Queen and her ministers, as well as the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And yet it does highlight the fact that when we get into an area where, as Lord Sumption has so rightly said, there isn't a parliamentary majority, because normally this all works because the government is able to command a parliamentary majority you start getting into some really complicated areas where we're unable to untangle the best way forward. And, of course, the consequence of that is that what you are then forced back on is that the only real way out is to bring down the administration you disagree with on a vote of no confidence, which perhaps is the clear and honest way of proceeding. But the peculiarity we have at the moment is that for various reasons, MPs in the two main political parties aren't in favour of bringing down the government on a vote of no confidence because they don't particularly fancy a general election which looks set on destroying both parties' monopoly of power. And this, I think, explains 90% of the sort of twisting and turning that's going on at the moment in the House of Commons as people try to try to find a way through this. And, of course, everybody twists and turns, and it may just be that at the end of the day we'll crash out with no deal as a consequence because nobody will be willing to come to the crunch. It may be that governments in office and the new prime minister will feel that actually ignoring parliament is a dangerous thing to do, which it certainly is, because I think the consequences will be felt further down the track, and it may be that parliament may finally, excuse the... Uh, uh, get its mojo, and in the House of Commons decide that it really wants to do something. But I suspect that something will be bringing down the government, because increasingly as I look at the alternatives, I realise that we can continue dancing around for a very long time through September and October, otherwise to no very great conclusion. Thank you. Thank you.
finally, uh, Stephen, on the balance of power between the executive and parliament. Yes, I've lost. Advantage of coming last in one of these things <laughs> is that you're presented. If you've all heard, and some of you know my background, you're presented as a, a details man who has been presented with a very general question to ask and is desperate to um, address all the detail that I've heard already. But I shall stick to what I was asked to do, and perhaps if anyone wants to know what I think on, about prorogation or estimates or the Northern, North, using the Northern Ireland Bill um, to perhaps create Brexit-related and perverse incentives in the restoration of devolution in Northern Ireland, uh, they can ask me a question about it. Um, so, I want to begin with um, a quote from uh, Jeremy Waldron's Dignity of Legislation. Machiavelli warned us almost 500 years ago not to be fooled into thinking that calmness and solemnity are the mark of a good polity and noise and conflict a symptom of political pathology. Uh, a quote that's also been used to support the political constitution that Lord Sumption mentioned and which I, uh, analysis of which I, I wholly endorse. The I was asked to, actually to ask, answer two questions, and I've already answered a, a number more. Um, th the second was about the role of the courts, and I shall touch on that, but we can, again, come back to that in questions if we want to. I want to concentrate on the first, which was, how has the balance of power between the executive and parliament shifted during the Brexit process? And forgive me if I use as uh, my background uh, some of the things you've already heard from Megan Lord Norton. Uh, this question seems to me to be based on a misconception. It assumes a norm that divides and separates powers between the executive and parliament, and so involves a question of balance. That constitutional model does exist elsewhere, and descriptions of the UK constitution are often distorted to fit it. It's not an accurate description, nor in my view would it be a good thing if it were. Instead, the UK constitution is much better described in political terms as providing different channels of influence over the exercise of powers that, for all practical purposes, are shared. This then requires a collaboration between the executive and parliament as different institutions, authorised and equipped to make different contributions to the process of government. And that required collaboration involves a relationship that is quite unsuited to regulation by the courts. Like most collaborative relationships, it doesn't fit well with the culture of litigation, which is inherently divisive. Parliament does not need a third party to referee its interactions with government. The attempts, uh, and uh, Lord Sumption mentioned Miller, and I disagree with him uh, on aspects of that, and I think the other important case was Whiteman, which I think is really difficult to defend. That was the case that, decide, uh, that made a reference to the European Court about whether or not Article 15 notice was unilaterally revocable. Um, the attempts to use litigation in connection with Bre Brexit have, in those two cases, in my view, involved uh, worrying departures from legal and constitutional principles. But ultimately, they seem to me have proved in practice insignificant and largely futile. In the collaborative relationship between the executive and parliament, both legislation uh, both and le non-legislative policy, has to be initiated by the executive. The executive alone has the decision-making processes and resources for formulating and crucially for implementing policy and also for coordinating it across government. The role adopted by Parliament has been to provide challenge by scrutinising government proposals for change and to give them legitimacy and to call government to account for the outcomes. It's misleading to think of Parliament as a legislator 
Scripture in the sense of, having, of being the sole repository of legislative power. Uh, and then to conclude that the Commons has the right to, uh, bring, uh, to bring about legislation whenever it chooses. Parliament has very considerable influence over legislation and a veto, but its legislative functions do not exclude an equally legitimate role for the executive. What is in practice a double lock on legislative change is not an aberration. It's an essential component of the collaborative system we've developed. Moreover, Parliament does not uh, does much more than legislation. Its scrutiny and accountability of non-legislative functions um, also has to be carried out in collaboration with government. So what's Brexit done to all this? Well, first, um, Meg had done it first, but uh, Brexit has done it more conclusively. It's exploded the, this pernicious myth, um, but for some convenient myth, that Parliament is no more than a rubber stamp for the will of an overmighty executive. No one can seriously think after the last three years that Parliament has no influence over what government does. I should like to think too in that context, it's also drawn attention to the real contribution made by the work of select committees. The myth of a supine Parliament was never true. The illusion of government dominance was evidence not of passivity but of its considerable influence in preventing government from pursuing ideas that are unacceptable to public opinion. Public opinion represented in Parliament. Government, government has normally been able to assume that its policies are acceptable to public opinion if they are acceptable to Parliament. But as we know, the judgment on what Parliament opinion requires as regards our membership of the EU was delegated or, or actually in practice transferred to the result of a referendum. And that produced an answer that was incompatible with the consensus in Parliament. So we've also seen an attempt to reclaim the right to make that judgment. Uh, and Meg indicated that the debate on uh, how has been uh, driven by uh, a hidden debate on whether. We've, ha we've had government, a government seeking to implement a referendum treated as comparable to an absolutist 17th century monarch or, or alternatively as the creature of a populist mob. And these myths have also occasionally been deployed to justify more judicial intervention in the political process, specifically in relation to Brexit, but also in other cases. I want to say that conforming to public opinion, whether represented in Parliament or by a referendum, can never be as simple as mere passive compliance. Real-life politics also requires flexibility and the use of leadership and persuasion to mould opinion to form the largest possible consensus in support of change. And maybe something's been lacking there. But a failure in that department does not seem to me to be evidence of absolutism or the risk of it, or of a surrender to the mob. I entirely agree with uh, everything that um, Dominic has said uh, about uh, confidence, uh, although I take a more rigid view of it. I, I, neither the confidence principle nor parliamentary sovereignty requires the government, while it is allowed to remain in office and so taken to retain the confidence of the House of Commons, uh, notwithstanding that in practice we can see that it's probably lost it. Neither of those doctrines uh, require government to abandon its accountability for policy making or to surrender it piecemeal to the House of Commons and it would be corrosive of the system if it did. The remedy for a deadlock is the withdrawal of confidence and the replacement of government if necessary following an election. So, in my view, we are not seeing shifts in the balance of power within the Constitution. We are instead seeing an ongoing noisy political conflict 
within the established relationship between Parliament and government, and the political struggle by those involved both to secure their preferred outcomes and to secure legitimacy for them, while time is running out on the available options. This conflict has been complicated by something that is a complicating factor in any collaborative relationship, the introduction, admittedly with the consent of both parties, of a third party represented by the referendum result. Uh, I think the same complication might occur if you had citizens' assemblies, as was discussed earlier. It's possible to worry about whether some of the myths and tactics deployed in the conflict to cope with this complication will be adopted as accepted features of the system and do real long-term damage to it. But there is also a comfort to be derived from the fact that the system so far has required a focus on all sides on acquiring legitimacy for their preferred outcomes, rather than facilitated forcing them through their adoption. And the system's proved remarkably resilient to efforts to transform it for short-term objectives. Uh, despite all Dominic's efforts, the government has not yet been forced to do anything that it had not already been persuaded to do. <laughs> the next government may be more difficult to persuade to do uh, the things that Dominic would like them to do, but that's the situation so far. And legitimacy is the crucial quality, and this was discussed in the earlier session. Legitimacy is the crucial quality that constitutional arrangements have to be able to confer on political decisions and their results. Conferring legitimacy is actually what they are for. It's essential both that those who do not get what they want from political decisions are able to accept the legitimacy of the decision-making process and so be reconciled to the decisions, and also that those who govern are able to be held accountable for what happens on their watch. Almost anything that is politically justifiable is procedurally achievable within the UK constitutional system. In the political constitution, it's the strength of the political justification for the legitimacy of the proposal that is ultimately the only regulating factor. But constitutional history also teaches that using procedural innovation and ingenuity to win a political victory carries a high risk of provoking and legitimizing an equally innovative or ingenious response, as I discussed in the Sunday Times article with Richard, and that makes it much less likely that the necessary legitimacy will be secured by either side for the eventual outcome. An escalation of deviations from the normal and accepted processes can only produce more division, and perhaps that's the change wrought by Brexit, a reduction in the universal understanding and acceptance of that simple truth. Thank you very much to all panellists. That's absolutely fascinating. I've, I've learned lots, I can tell you that. Um, can I start by asking Lord Sumption a question? I know you said you don't want to predict an outcome for a JR of um, suspending Parliament, but if you, still had, if you were still sitting at the Supreme Court and it got to that stage... How, how would you decide? Would any of Catherine's, or which of Catherine's arguments, if any, would find favour with you? If I were still sitting, I would be listening to an altogether wider range of arguments than we've heard from anyone, and I would decide in the light of those. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
what do you think those arguments might be that would persuade you? How long have you got? We've got time, haven't we? <laughs> five o'clock. Yeah, we've well, five. One, uh, I mean, to put it as briefly as possible, uh, the argument on one side is going to be uh, that conventions are not justiciable by the courts at all. And that is a proposition for which there is existing Supreme Court authority in the form of the Gina Miller case. Uh, the other side's argument will be saying, but there's got to be some way of preventing uh, ministers from tendering advice to Her Majesty, which is unconstitutional. And if the courts won't do it, the Constitution uh, isn't worth very much. Uh, it may be that the answer to that is that the Constitution is worth as much as political pressure is able to apply to it. That's as much as we're going to get, isn't it? From, from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a girl's got to try. S Stephen, do you think it would work? What, the prorogation? No, the judicial review to stop it. No, I don't. Uh, and I, I don't think it should work. Um, I, 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 think the issue, I think prorogation is a red herring. I, I can't think of any situation in which it would help. Uh, I, I don't think it would help in any situation where, as I said, it can't be politically justified. And, of, of course, I, I think there is a slight confusion about what prorogation means. Uh, I think, although it is what... It was the issue in Canada. The issue in Canada was whether you should have a prorogation that would prevent... that, that had the effect of preventing a vote of no confidence that would trigger an election. And the, the Governor-General found that very difficult. And I cannot conceive of how it could be justified in the current circumstances. Uh, I, I can imagine that a government might say, uh, if you don't vote no confidence in us, we'll prorogue you. Uh, but that would be different. They, they would have the chance to vote no confidence. Uh, there are other scenarios you can imagine in which prorogation uh, might be provide some benefit in what is to come. Um, I, I, I find it difficult to imagine a case where the political cost of um, prorogation after all the discussion has been of it would outweigh the benefit that you would get from it. And the timetable is running so fast anyway. Um, we, we are almost at the moment when voting no confidence in the government uh, will not produce an election before the 31st of October. Or at least you need to put an, a, a motion of no confidence down in the very near future in order to have that effect. Um, you know, prorogation isn't going to, to make any difference. It's certainly not going to be used to stop a vote of no confidence. But would it, would it be legitimate to the court, for the court to stop it? No, I think not. I, th I think it's, it's a constitutional prerogative of the Crown that it would be very unwise of the courts to get involved in. Dominic, do you agree? I, I'm certainly of the view that it is very hard to see how the issue can be made justiciable on a JR. I was fascinated to hear Lord Sumption's suggestion as to how the monarch might get round the difficulty of being seen to act on advice if the Prime Minister's advice that she was getting was to her to her so controversial that she was very concerned about it. And I agree with Stephen. I think the case in Canada is a bit of a red herring. It was a very unusual set of circumstances. Uh, 
on the face of it, if the purpose of proroguing Parliament is to avoid a motion of no confidence, where there is clear evidence that a motion of no confidence is likely to be carried, <coughs> then it is a startling undermining of the principle of parliamentary democracy to such an extent that it is horrendous. <laughs> it, is, it is. That's why I use the expression, effectively, the end of parliamentary democracy. Because in order to avoid a consequence that is fully provided for within our system, the Prime Minister asks or instructs the Queen to do something which completely undermines the whole structure of the Constitution. And until Dominic Raab introduced this, I don't think any of us had even considered this as a viable option. And even once he'd done it, and then he mercifully, I have to say, in the circumstances, disappeared out of the leadership campaign, uh, because I have to say it was one of the more startling moments from my point of view, Boris Johnson then continued to sort of run with it as a sort of sotto voce, I might do this, when all he really has had to say was stand up and say, of course, this is a completely ridiculous argument, and I would never contemplate it. So in a sense, it's taken us off in a curious direction that otherwise I don't think we would have ever had to consider. Uh, so I do have some doubt. I mean, I, I can see how the JR could be brought and indeed would probably end up in the Supreme Court. But what the outcome of this would be, I hate to think. Um, I take Stephen's point, but whether this is something which my colleagues wake up to, one of the curious issues with all this is that I think that if a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom seeks to take the United Kingdom out of the EU with no deal we may well end up with a situation, I think it's highly probable, where his administration will be brought down. But the irony is that the reluctance to do it may lead to the administration falling at a stage when it's too late, <laughs> at least technically, and this raises another constitutional issue we haven't considered. If a general election gets called, say, in mid to late September, but it's still the same prime minister in office, the convention which I think will be pointed out to the Prime Minister by the Cabinet Secretary, is that the maintenance of the status quo pending the outcome of an election is really important and that the Prime Minister should therefore seek an extension from the European Union of the Article 50 process until such time as the general election is over so that a new administration, if it's not his administration, taking a different view about negotiation and extension can have the opportunity to do this. This is why the current convention exists, that there are certain decisions which can't be made by government in what's called the PERDA period, which have always been observed or largely observed. But we're now living in a situation where there is a belief that a prime minister might seek to defy that and simply say, well, you can have your general election, but you'll be out of the EU before the issue around which the general election is taking place. What about that as an issue? Is that going to end up in the Supreme Court as well? I, 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 th I, think, I think that's another little, little thing we'll contemplate. But seeing how the House of Commons is working at the moment, I can easily see a situation where this government finally gets toppled at a stage when it's technically too late to resolve the issue on which it is being toppled by a general election before the end date. Uh, uh, first of all, I would, I, I would uh, adopt everything that Lord Sumption said about a conventions on the question whether or not the Perda Convention is justiciable. Um, but, uh, and I take the, absolutely take the force of the argument that what the status quo would require would be for us to stay in the European Union as we are at the moment, because that is the status quo. But equally, a Prime Minister might take the view 
that the status quo is that we are leaving the European Union on the 31st of October. And the question is, um, who decides? And primarily, it, in the first instance, it is going to be the Prime Minister who decides. And it seems to me there are, there are arguments that you can take on, on each side as to what the status quo is. And I think that is a very difficult question, and I don't, don't think it's clear-cut. But peregration, before we move on. I wanted to say um, two things. I mean, obviously, I'm um, conscious of the decision in Miller on the point about convention. On the other hand, there is a shift. I don't want to overstate that shift about uh, a move towards developing some sort of common law principle about having an effective remedy. I admit that the case which decided that was looking at what we would call secondary law. It was an order in council, not an act of parliament, and certainly nothing of this level of constitutional um, complexity. But it is odd, and it may be, we've discovered where the outer limits of our constitution lie, that there would be no possibility of challenging something which so fundamentally undermines the power of parliament. The other point I wanted to make, um, which gets lost in the telling, is that assuming we leave on the 31st of October, um, Article 50 gets turned off. And that's really quite important in terms of what comes next, because we heard from, uh, Dominic, uh, from uh, Bernard Jenkin this morning that there would be a free trade agreement um, negotiated. It would be quick and it would be short. Um, but it's not at all clear to me legally how you get to that point because um, assuming that we have left on the 31st of October, Article 50 gets turned off. So therefore it has to be done under different legal provisions. Probably if it's on, just on goods, it would be under Article 207. But of course the EU has made it very clear that they won't engage in any trade um, talks until we've sorted out the three big ticket items, namely... Um, citizens' rights, the, the so-called Brexit bill, and the Northern Ireland border issue, which then takes us outside the scope of Article 207. And, of course, th these things could be dealt with under Article 50, under the relatively benign legal regime under Article 50. But the moment Article 50 gets turned off, it all becomes infinitely more complicated, legally speaking. And I can see that there will be challenges... Um, not before the British courts, but there is a chance there'll be challenges before the Court of Justice that were some magic solution arise and were uh, the EU to have a complete change of heart, seems unlikely according to the Sun this morning because uh, tentative inquiries um, from Stephen Barclay suggested that the EU was not sympathetic to the argument of having a quick and dirty free trade agreement. Therefore, um, it, let's imagine that this is all wrong, that the EU has a dramatic change of heart, and they agree to a quick um, free trade agreement. The fact is, all of these other factors would have to come into account, so it probably becomes a mixed agreement, which requires the agreement of not just the EU, but also the national and regional parliaments. And before you know it, you will have a challenge from the Walloons or somewhere else to say that we are not happy with what's being negotiated and how it's being done. So it's actually really, the, the, the sequencing issue is really, really crucial. Catherine, can I just stick? I, I will open it to the floor in a minute, but I've just got one more question. It's, it's, it's kind of a big question rolled into one. Um, is this just a, a, a constitutional crisis or, or just a political one? And, and wh wh where does the fault lie? Is it with the Dominics and the politicians of this world? 
<laughs> the Jonathan Sumptions and the courts, um, the whole of the Brexit project, or the, the lack of clarity in the Constitution? But it's a perfect storm, isn't it? It's a perfect storm, which is um, that Brexit was always going to be an absolutely gargantuan exercise, and anyone who said it wasn't really didn't know what they were talking about. And from that point of view, that leavers are absolutely right, that our system is so integrated into the regulatory, um, uh, highly regulated systems of the EU, just think about agriculture, think about fisheries, think about the single energy market, think about the single skies. These are highly regulated spaces. And if you're a Brexiteer, you say, well, we've been so sucked in, look how difficult it is to get out. But the fact is, we are where we are. And trying to get out of all of those things, as we've already heard today, requires a huge amount of legislation. It also requires lots of new institutions to be set up. And, of course, the politics is grafted on top, where you've got a completely divided country, and you've got Remainers who are feeling that they were cheated in the referendum. You've got Leavers who feel that anything other than a pure Brexit is they will be cheated. And so the politics is poison, so inevitably the courts get dragged into it because they are seen as the independent arbitrators, and this is where the, you see the limits of our constitution. Good job you've got academics to sort it all out. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Sumption, where does the blame lie? I think that the blame lies essentially with the referendum. The referendum as a general technique for decision making prioritise, it's, it's a mode of decision which is designed to circumvent the political process, which is the most effective process which democracies have ever devised for arriving at a compromise, which maybe nobody likes very much, but the widest possible range of people can live with. And we have destroyed the possibility of doing that by going for a referendum. Not only is the referendum in principle a rotten way of making decisions of this complexity and importance, but this particular referendum was, to my mind, a particular travesty because there are too many answers to the question that it posed other than yes or no. So it's a failure, failure well, of parliamentary failure. democracy. Well, it is. It's a failure of politicians, actually. Mm. It's been rather polite, because <laughs> having identified the referendum, the people who are responsible for referendum were the politicians such as myself who went along with it when it was put forward. But, I mean, that, that, I suppose, opens up the question as to how we make political decision-making. The referendum was dreamt up by David Cameron. The only person he spoke to about it before he announced it as a political aim of the Conservative Party seems to have been George Osborne. He told a political cabinet, I was present, that he was making the Bloomberg speech at six hours' notice. He then made it. He then probably hoped he would never have to implement it. He then won an election, by which stage, mercifully, I wasn't in government, and he then decided he had to implement it, and then I'm afraid that we were all much too loyal and went along with it. The only person who didn't was Ken Clark, and Ken was absolutely right about that. And it, it's right, but it, and of course, Labour voted, lots of people voted for it. So one's got to face up to the fact that it was a major political failure in relation to the way we carry out our political activities, and we are paying the price for it now. The Constitution allows for all of this, so is, is there a failure on the part of the Constitution also? No, I don't, I don't think there is. I, I mean, I go back to my quote. It, it, it's noisy politics, and it's politics that's the fault. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to let the EU off the hook, actually. When I, when I lectured on this in Bristol in March, by which time everybody thought it was all going to be settled, amazingly, um, I, I played Beverly Knight singing... Uh, 
would have, could have, should have, the last words of the fall. So I'm reluctant to go back over what should have happened. But there is one thing that is obvious about any point of political difficulty, which is that the only way you get people on board, people who don't want to accept what you've got, and, and basically we, we need something that nobody really wants to accept, but which everybody can accept, you only get people to accept it if there is a way out of it in the future. If they can save face by, by saying that there is an, that if it turns out as badly as we say it's going to turn out, there's something we can do about it. And the EU has determinedly denied us that. And I think that, well, I think they should not be let off the hook because I think that is a large part of our difficulty. I, I think if there had been a way out of it, my judgment is that the second uh, meaningful vote, the one with the law, mm. law officer's opinion, which, you know, talking about battle lost, now was lost, if he put, perhaps put his last sentence first, that, that also might have helped. Um, but that vote was ready to be won by the government for that. And it wasn't won, it was rushed, partly, I think, because someone miscalculated the timetable in Miss Cooper's bill, mm. so everything moved much quicker than it should have done. Uh, partly because everything was done in such a hurry. That was ready to be accepted, and maybe we wouldn't be here now if it had been. But that's Beverly Knight's territory. This is the second part of my final question. Catherine, does all of this make the case for a written constitution, or, or are there, is it better to have what we have? <coughs> I'm... In, I, I'm increasingly coming to the view that we do need a written constitution, but not actually because of these problems, because these problems will eventually get resolved, and in the short term, in fact, because um, it seems very unlikely that we will have a, a significant extension. But I think um, the, increasingly there's a case for a written constitution, because how are we going to manage the devolved um, administration of the world governments and the relations with the centre? And I think one of the um, paradoxes, and maybe this is a self-justification for keeping my job, is that it's interesting to look at the EU to see how the EU manages um, quite actually quite a decentralised system and how they ensure that goods can move freely from one country to another and persons can move freely. The lessons learned from the EU about having essentially a skeletal constitution that does eventually get fleshed out is actually a lesson for what the UK constitution might look like. Because we now talk, which we never used to, about the UK internal market or the UK single market. And in fact, that single market is going to need rules to operate. And the more powers that the devolved administrations have, then the more there will be a need to make sure that there is a constitution that actually regulates how that is going to work. And so, in fact, it may end up looking, paradoxically, somewhat like the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And that really would be a turn up for the books. <laughs> well, Samson. Well, um, I, I really don't think it... Uh, either adds to or subtracts from the case for a written constitution. We can uh, make whatever changes to the Scotland Act we like. The fact is we already have a constitution which, so far as it is based in statute, is written, and relations between the central government and the devolved powers are part of that. They are governed by Acts of Parliament. Now, I quite see that in many ways those Acts of Parliament have not worked terribly well, but the answer is not to have a written constitution, uh, but to amend uh, the, the Scotland Act and the Wales Act.
Stephen. Uh, I think there are two reasons why we should have a written constitution, two main reasons. Uh, the first is because it would introduce the judiciary much more closely into politics, which I think would be a bad thing. And second, because I think it is impractical, it, it is literally impossible to produce one. I, in my career, was asked several times to draft a decision-making process uh, that would be impartial. Impartial and better than the previous decision-making process. In the process of doing that, the first thing when you start drafting is when you've got a draft, you test it against a scenario. And very soon your clients, your political clients, or you yourself, are looking at what outcomes the revised decision-making process would produce. And you then make decisions about what outcomes you would want. So you can only write a written constitution if you know what sort of decisions you want it to bring about. And you can only get a written constitution passed if you can get consensus on what those decisions would be. Imagine trying to do that now. Would the constitution, the written constitution we have, be a written constitution that would make Brexit easier or more difficult more, or easier to stop? Dominic. Well, a moment of hesitation on my part. I, I've been an advocate uh, of considering whether we ought to have been talk of having a Bill of Rights and whether the Bill of Rights defining slightly better some of the relationships we have without moving to a full written constitution might be of assistance. And I've advocated that and given talks on it. I've been very hesitant about moving to written constitutions because they have to start to become very fiddly. And I actually believe, agree with Lord Sumption that in many ways, some of our constitution is written down, although it's subject to quite a lot of interpretation and it may not have been very well written. But I'm also a realist. And one of the problems we've got is that as long as we're in crisis, there's no time to consider a written constitution. And if we're not in crisis, nobody wants to consider a written constitution. So my view is that we'll get a written constitution if the United Kingdom falls apart. And at that point, England and Wales will get probably a written constitution. We'll do it after the horse has bolted. So I begin to think, and I've begun, come round to this view, that I think it's rather a although it's a very interesting topic, uh, I think the chances of developing it in a sensible way are rather limited. And I'm not sure it's going to happen, even though I'm very happy to continue giving lectures and talks and engaging in academic discourse on this particular subject. Okay. So. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, um, so the, the question seems to me that we're sort of going back and forth about whether constitution or, or no constitution. And the sort of timely question seems to me that this, this is more like a, a this is a set, an inherently political issue in the sense that it's, it's making me think of Carl, Carl Schmitt. I mean, it's a challenge to the concept of liberal democracy that you're putting forward. I mean, it's the, the real question is who... Uh, he who makes the who decides the exception is sovereign, yeah? So it, the challenge that's being offered here, like essentially by the Brexit party element, by the Nigel Farage element, is an anti-liberal democracy challenge. It's not, a, it's not one that can be resolved by, by th this discussion. The, 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 my question to you is, do you recognise the, the challenge to the very system that you are discussing as a whole. 
as opposed to just how we might reform that system. This is a challenge to whether we should have this at all. Perhaps if, if you want to pass it to the lady, then we'll... See. My question is, um, if the uh, advice to prorogue Parliament or the prorogation of Parliament is not justiciable, then, um, to use Catherine's words, how can ministers be questioned by Parliament if Parliament has been prorogued? Okay, who wants to go first? Lord how Sanchez. Can ministers be questioned by Parliament if Parliament has been prorogued? Well, obviously they can't during the, the period of prorogation. Uh, it would depend how long it is. Um, in the Canadian case that was which mentioned, normally the condition imposed by the Governor-General before agreeing uh, to uh, a prorogation has been that some items on the agenda will have to return as soon as Parliament returns. Uh, and that was what brought about the fall of the Canadian government uh, in 1873, the first time this happened. They obtained a prorogation in order to stop the work of a parliamentary committee, which it thought was going to produce a result critical of the government. Uh, they were given the prorogation, but on condition that the committee's work should continue and should be brought back before the, uh, the House the moment it returned. When it returned, the report was highly critical. There was a vote of no confidence, and the government was out. Gentleman's first question. Uh, Lord yes. Um. Challenges to the system. Um, Yes. Uh, firstly, I rather agree with Stephen in his comment that I don't think the fact that we're in this chaos is an indication that the system has collapsed. It's undoubtedly under challenge, but it is, in fact, operating within the parameters which you might reasonably have expected, even if it's chucking up large quantities of problem along the way. When it comes to prorogation, I'll stand by what I said earlier, to prorogue Parliament for the purpose of avoiding the government falling on a motion of no confidence in circumstances where it's pretty plain that you don't have the confidence of the House is a constitutional enormity. And for that reason, I rather think it won't happen because I think there are limits to what governments in reality can do. Now, whether it's the sovereign monarch going off and getting the advice of privy councillors about the propriety of this happening, uh, I don't know. Certainly, we don't wish to involve the monarch in our politics uh, into the political arena, but it seems to me that in view of some of the duties which still residually fall upon the monarch in our constitutional process, the monarch would be well within their rights to say that such a prorogation was improper. That's been my view all along. Uh, but obviously, one wants to avoid that having to happen. But I would think there'll be quite a few people telling a prime minister that this is really something so improper to ask for that they shouldn't be doing so. I think we have time for one or maybe two. The gentleman here. Hi, I've got two questions, really. One, do you think the Fixed-Term Parliamentary Act should be discarded somehow, you know, if it's not serving any f function in the fixed term parliamentary. Second question I have is, it's like in cricket. You know, it used to be umpire's word was final, game got, got on. Now we have better technology, so you can review and so on. Has it actually made any difference to the game of cricket? It hasn't. So 
parliamentary people codifying things and breaking conventions, how does it help the overall parliamentary process? Simply because you codify it. Does it make sense? Now, the question is, simply because you codify something and you get more finer detail, accuracy through written constitution and so on, doesn't make the politics any better. Uh, thank you. Daniel Winkolt, Research Director of UK and Changing Europe. Um, after a vote of no confidence uh, in the government, uh, one possibility is going to a general election. An another possibility is that someone else tries to find a majority in Parliament, perhaps a temporary government of national unity. My question is, is there anyone on the panel who might see him or herself as a potential Prime Minister in those circumstances? <laughs> somebody from the part, part, the largest party which is represented within it. And I think if we were to end up with a government of national unity, I think it's unlikely that the Conservative Party, it would be the majority party within it, although it is possible. I don't know. Would I be willing to participate in a government of national unity to deliver a referendum or some result other than crashing out on the 31st of October, then I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes. Although with reluctance, but I think, because it would be a sign that my own party, I'd failed to take us where we wanted to be, but I rather doubt that it would, I would be the person who would be leading it. Um, on the second point about the Fixed Term Parliament Act, yes, my view is that it should have been limited. It was brought in join a coalition government to prevent the coalition being broken up by the senior party against the wishes of the junior party. And I think it would have been very sensible if it had been time-limited to the duration of the coalition. Stephen. Well, I, I have to declare an interest in the Fixed Term Parliament Act as I was involved in drafting it. Um, I, I, I think it's one of the things I always want to say about the Fixed Term Parliament Act is that the one that was passed by Parliament was not the one that was introduced the one that in, was introduced had a general definition of an initial vote of no confidence and then had the idea that you come back after the general vote of no confidence to confirm either it as a vote of no confidence or to approve a new government that had been formed. I mean, it's completely right. It was there to stop, uh, for the benefit of the Liberal Democrats, to prevent a larger party in a coalition gaming life so that, they spent, so that everybody spent their entire time in government looking over their shoulder to see if uh, David Cameron was trying to fix um, Nick Clegg with a, a, a losing general election. And, uh, I mean, in the end he lost it five years later, but um, that, that was it, its function. And it, it potentially had that function in relation to further um, coalition governments. I mean, it, it, that was a beneficial uh, effect. It had the beneficial effect of producing a more stable government in a situation which... People forget that in 2010, the situation was actually pretty desperate. You know, the old government was rushing off to Brussels to negotiate deals, financial deals and so on. Uh, it was very important we had a stable government. Um, so I, I think that if it had stayed 
with the original system and being closer to something that was actually precedented in the mm. Maastricht votes of John Major. It might have been better. But I also don't think it's that bad because I think ultimately it enables uh, governments one way or another and uh, Parliament to produce a result that could have been produced under the old system. Catherine, Jonathan, any... Um, well, no, you go first because I'm going to wrap up because I wrap up Parliament. Okay. Um, I, I personally think that the Fixed Term Parliament Act is admirable and should be uh, maintained. Um, uh, it does have the disadvantage uh, that it can have the effect, as it is at the moment, of locking people into a difficult position, although the mechanisms in the Act do, in fact, provide an exit route from that. But I think there are three basic points. First of all, uh, Britain and countries very closely modelled their constitution on ours is pretty well the only countries in the world where the length of a parliament is entirely at the discretion of the governing party. And that seems to me to be a very strange principle. Uh, secondly, and following on from that, it seems to me that making it a matter which is at the discretion of the governing party is open to the kind of abuse to which it was subjected for decades before the Fixed Term Parliament Act, under which the, the government in power sought to manipulate economic data in such a way as to coincide with the chosen moment for an election, which they might well have lost if it had happened, say, a year later. Thirdly, uh, I think that although we haven't had many coalitions, we must cater for the possibility of further hung parliaments and further necessities to accommodate coalitions. And it is simply not reasonable to expect parties to go into coalition uh, with each other in circumstances where uh, the major party in the coalition has the complete whip hand that arises from its being able to call a general election whenever it likes. Thank you. Can I just draw today to a close? First of all, I would like to thank my fellow panellists um, for their uh, admirable um, and insightful contribution. I'd like to thank the panellists from the rest of today, from whom we have learned a great deal, and I'd like to thank you all for um, being here, for giving up your day, and for your very lively participation. Thanks to the Constitution Unit and Hansard Society, who've um, helped uh, to support this event, and to the Economic and Social Research Council, who keeps uh, UK and a changing Europe in beer and skittles. And in particular, thanks to um, the excellent staff of UK and changing Europe. Anand's been texting me during the day to tell me that his funeral, um, which he was very sadly um, at, um, has, has passed off and once again has asked me to pass on his deep apologies that he cannot be here with you. Certainly when we started to prepare for this conference, we knew that we weren't in normal times, but we didn't know quite how relevant the Constitution would be and how the Constitution would be challenged, both by the civil services against the executive, or the executive against the civil service, the executive against the police, parliament against the executive, and so it goes on. And of course now we are all fully equipped to talk fluently about proroguing parliament and other issues that hadn't entered our vocabulary much in the previous three years. If you would like to know more, please follow us all on Twitter and other forms of social media, which you will either love or you will hate. But can I wish you safe travels home, and thank you very much indeed to everyone. Thank you.